Welcome to the World Awakening Podcast, a production of Invenari, a community centered around following the deep longings, discovering our unique gifts daily, becoming the change we wish to see in the world, and leaning into the mysteries of life. This is something we all do together. Your invitation into this journey begins right now. Welcome back to another podcast of World Awakening. We are the ones we have been waiting for. I'm Mark Wallstrom, and in conversation with me today, again, Nicholas Melville. Hello. So our conversation today, as we are exploring this movement of awakening, we're going to look at what... um, some people refer to as the death of the ego. And um, does that really happen? Is that accurate? What's involved? Um, Why does that need to happen, if it needs to happen? So the place we decided to start is, well, let's talk about the ego. How does it come about? And why does one have to take into consideration the ego when when moving forward in life toward a more awakened state. And I think that's critical because when we think about um, spiritual growth or awakening, there is the sense that I should just be able to do this through, you know, um, meditation or various spiritual practices. And uh, But what's becoming more apparent is, is that while that, obviously can happen it doesn't happen for that many people and the realization is is that because there are numerous internal blocks and barriers for that meditative state to actually be experienced or you know for more awakened states to occur because there's there's just a lot of internal uh, emotional reactivity blocks barriers fixations these are all things that we are calling the ego. Right, yeah. The, you know, if you think about it in a way of how does the death of the ego come about or how does one deal with the ego, and all of a sudden one person does it through this one way, and then a lot of people start going, oh, that's the way, and then they go into that way, and then they say, I'm a follower of this way kind of thing, and that their ego is still very prevalent, and... There's not a, um, you know, there's not a one-way solution to this. And uh, so, like, yes, Buddha became enlightened through, um, he became enlightened through meditation and self-reflection, but that doesn't mean (coughs) you have to become a meditator and self-reflector to do this. Um, It just was his way. And... um, and you hear a lot of people today going, oh, I meditate. It's like a status thing, you know? And like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to take care of myself. And But unless, you know, unless it's like genuine um, and you're not doing it for status because uh, it's cool, you know, uh, it's not really going to do anything for you. So there's, there is no one way 
uh, through this. Um, Krishnamirti put it, truth is a pathless land kind of thing. So there's no one way to get there. Um, and that kind of goes into, you know, people saying, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm that I am part, that's that's where the ego's warming its way back in. Yeah, the ego really gets into, this is me. So, what is the ego? It's, um, one version of the ego would be, the pedestrian version of ego is probably, oh, that's somebody who's really self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. Somebody who thinks about themselves a lot. Somebody Making who needs a lot ego, of attention yeah. and things like that, which... Yeah, you could say that that might be a a feature of the ego at times, or more of a um, expressed feature with some people. Mm-hmm. Another definition of ego is who you think you are. Right, right. And that one seems to lend itself better to this sense of waking up becoming more conscious and aware. So who I think myself to be then is just another thought. I'm this, I'm that. Those are just descriptors of maybe my job, my sexual orientation or, you know, I'm male, I'm female. And um, what's getting missed is there is this thing being developed over one's lifetime. Mm That is a image that I want to put out to the world, most likely just to be accepted, approved, and feel like I belong. Right. So a lot of work goes into developing a persona self, at least for many people, where I have to consciously construct this in a manner that's that's going to work. Right. You may um, you may experience this. Um, the ego as the inner narrative. It's the inner story you tell yourself about your past and what you're doing in the present and how this is going to benefit you in the future or hinder you in the future. It's it's a story, and that story gives you a role, just like any story, a character, and you genuinely believe you're the character in the story. You think your past memories are real, um, inaccurate, even though studies show that they're not very <laughs> accurate. Um, but like, yeah, you think that's, that's all happening and it's relevant. It's relevant to the now. Um, and so that's, that's the, the experiential perspective of the ego. You experience it as you hear the story in your head kind of thing. Yeah, the ego, the ego is not necessarily bad wrong, evil, something negative, I would just describe it as it's a very limited perspective from which to live by. And so in its limitations, it does bring us to struggle and suffering that isn't really inevitable. Mm -hmm. What's inevitable is in human development, we are going to establish a sense of an ego, a persona, a separate self at some point. <clears throat> so that said, um, 
if you look at developmental models, psychological developmental models, cognition comes along at age two or three, mm-hmm. around there. You start to have a sense of, oh, I am a separate self. Right. You start to respond to your name. You start to make requests for certain foods right. or not want certain foods. You start to dress yourself, pick out and choose the clothes that you want. You are now becoming you. Right. Yeah, and then it's kind of, I think they're calling it now like the nomadic mind. It's what you're doing is you're starting to put yourself, and when I say yourself, you're, you've identified with your body at this point. So then you're putting yourself in future possibilities. Some of those possibilities are good. Some of them are really bad um, or pleasurable and or painful would be more accurate. Um, and you're imagining yourself in those, and then the ones that are painful start to give you anxiety. Um, the ones that are pleasurable, you start to become anxious for, you know. Um, so you're, you're putting your character in future possibilities, and when you can see from an evolutionary perspective why that would be advantageous, you know, to... Oh, if I go over there, I might die. Yeah, that makes sense. But um, now it's more like, um, well, if I go over there, I might become sad or it might hurt my feelings or something along those lines. So then you develop anxiety about that. Or uh, if I do really well on this date, it might end up very pleasurable, right? So then you're anxious towards towards the end at that point so it's you putting yourself in future possibilities that starts to create this anxiety of of the conflict between what should be and what is so the ego is not necessarily something that everybody has a developed sense of a separate self, and I'm thinking of indigenous peoples who, from birth, um, typically in many traditions, um, the birth parents will wait for the name for that child to come through the great spirit. Right. right. So who is this child? What's this child's name? Mm-hmm. So there's no influence on the child as far as, oh, we think, you know, the name should be this. They wait and they discern and they try to gain something of a greater, you know, apprehension for right. who is this being, what is their name. And then as they're raised, they are raised in a, a sense of belonging to something greater, the web of life. Right. So... <clears throat> The need for a separate self to stand out and be successful isn't really, you know, there's no real merit to it. You're right. In in a culture like that. In fact, typically it's nobody really stands out here (laughs) as being better or worse. We're all part of a village. Right, yeah, we're just told a story about better or worse. Right, we're told a story about... This is the best basketball player that's ever lived. You know, what I mean, that's so we're told that story as if there is a best. This is the best fighter that's ever lived. There's the best again. 
And then all of a sudden we start forming delusions like uh, this is the best person that's ever lived. And in order to be uh, recognized, I have to stand out in some way, even if it's an infamy from doing something horrible. So it's really this role. And, you know, there's there's positives to it You in the sense of you need your ego to kind of put your pants on in the morning. You know, you need your ego to go to work and fulfill a role. It is a role. But that doesn't mean that you need to identify with the ego. Um, and I think we're going to get into that in a little bit here. Yeah. In, in being raised in a culture where everybody belongs to the web, what that means then is everybody raises children in the village. You've heard the statement, it takes a village to raise a child. Right, yeah. What does that mean? Well, a lot of influences come to a child, not just its biological parents. And so there's a sense that this child belongs to the village and that it belongs to the greater web. And and by time when puberty comes for a child, enough people have been watching and paying attention and raising this child to have a sense of what this child's natural organic abilities are so at that point a child might be um told to join the the hunters for the day as they go out mm -hmm. because they seem to have that natural tendency of what's needed to be a good hunter right yeah. so then the seasoned experienced hunters will come back and say yes this Mm -hmm. This young person really does have natural tendencies to be and develop into a hunter, right. one of our hunters. And that's important because f in order for the village to be able to survive and thrive, each person really needs to be kind of living out of their, you could say maybe is their highest or most efficient mm -hmm. expression of being as a contribution to the whole or to, or to, or to the uh, community. So, but again, when there's a cultural norm or a cultural way of individuality more and success and climbing the ladder and showing one's worth, then it becomes something very different. Then your ego really has to be coming on in in numerous ways in order to get to that place of belonging, success, approval. And um, that's where a lot of life force energy is diminished. Right, yeah, it's just inefficient use of energy, really. Um, and so the death of the ego comes in as, uh, I would consider it a metaphor for the disidentification with the ego, for understanding that, yes, the ego is necessary for a role in society. If you eliminate the ego altogether, you really can't even talk. You know, there's, there's uh, monks who sit in a cave and stare at the wall of that cave all day, every day. Yeah, they've, they've gotten rid of their ego. Um, and uh, you could do that if you want, um, 
But, you know, there's a reason the universe manifested humanity in this way. And I think it's because the universe was interested in seeing itself from this perspective. And so as a human society, we need the ego to tell us, you know, to help us find our contributing role. But once that's found, um, then you, you pick it up and drop it like a tool, right? Because when you don't have it, when it's not there, that's when the awakened state is really present. And that's when you feel the tranquility, the peace of mind, the no anxiety. Uh, people have reported no pain. Of course, if there's no pain, there's no pleasure. Because uh, those are two sides of the same coin. Um, and it's absolute emptiness is another descriptor emptiness, stillness, holiness, um, and you enter that state. Um, and what we're trying to do at Invenery and as kind of being guides in that is to help you find a way to turn that on and off at will um, and know when to turn it on, to get to work, to get things done, to provide for your family because you're maybe still a father or mother. Um, you're still a contributing son or daughter or something along those lines. But then once the work is done, to flip the switch and go back to what you actually are, which is that there is no ego. There's nothing really there. This is all made up. And uh, you applied words to it. That's about it. And I think a key component here is how strongly one identifies with the ego, if you recognize it as a part of your your being, your expression to get things done, then you can utilize it, like you said, as a tool. But the, s the more we become identified with the ego nature, the, the persona self as me, then we really start moving farther away from what you might call my truest nature, my my deeper self, my it's really not a self, it's just my my essence. And so I I would say that a distinction is important between myself as identified with my persona and that where I'm just utilizing it for some kind of gain some kind of progress in maybe very practical things in life. Mm -hmm. Like you said, balancing the checkbook, the bank account, getting things done. Um, but here again, when we allow ourselves to not be too attached to it, it doesn't get developed in such a, a strong, finite way. It's more malleable. Right. So, like, if we were to look at it, like, if we looked at your inner narrative, and let's say you grew up feeling that your mom really didn't love you or something along those lines, what happens is the narrative takes over and goes, okay, your mom doesn't love you. Uh, that's because you're not lovable. And then you go, I'm not lovable. 
now you have identity. You have a string, strong identity at this point. And then, then you start to do things that accord with that belief that, well, it's okay that this person hates me because I'm unlovable and I know it, or something along those lines. When, after you get to the bottom of it, you're neither lovable nor unlovable. And what's lovable to one person is unlovable to the next. And because of that, none of that really has any meaning. And so you don't adopt a role and try to fulfill the characteristics of that role. Where people will say, um, you know, like you hear a lot of people call themselves, and this is my official cuss, uh, assholes. Like, I think they're weird you would describe yourself in that way but it allows you in your head to be more free so then you could be like oh well I could just chalk it up to that or people when they get drunk or they're drinking and they do stupid things and then they blame it on uh, uh, I, I was drinking uh, no it was you kind of thing <laughs> you know but you toss it under drinking to hopefully let that go you know and justify your actions. This is you just trying to find ways to free yourself up. When at the heart of it, you're none of these. You're you could be any of these. And what is one way to one person is another to another. And uh, none of this has any meaning. You know, it's actually nothing's really happening. And that starts to freak people out. Um, and then you take this to deeper levels, like where you start ending psychological time in a sense where you don't live in the past you live in the present you don't put yourself in future possibilities um, and you stay here and now and while you're there you have that sense of the universe that sense of um, being the window by which God views itself uh, and then when you go back to work, then you can bring up memories of how to do your job, what's the best route for future work, and plans and all of that. But once you walk out of that office, it's switch. Now you're back to no one. You know, And that switch, that no one state, that's the hardest part to get to because you know it you want to stand out we're told to stand out be yourself even though we don't know what that means um but everybody says it <laughs> yeah be myself meaning be the self that i keep trying to construct and project out there right right um and see what happens you know do i get enough thumbs up or likes on my phone you know right yeah am i am i getting enough uh, positive feedback that this presentation of myself is okay. Right. So, going back to that, I'm not lovable. Uh, I, I've been calling that the script. Right, yeah. And I think the script is something that occurs with the great majority of us at a very young age, where when we start to become cognitive of being a individual or a separate being, um, at some point, some occurrence, event, situation, or something is going to jar us out of our context of everything being 
you know, just in a unified whole, yeah. and I'm part of it, to something's different. Something's not right here. Um, I'm not getting the usual attention or so. And as children will do, they can oftentimes uh, perceive a situation as something about them when it's really mom and dad are, you know, screaming and hollering at each other. And then one of them shoots a look over at the child who's just like, I'm I'm just hungry. I just want some more food or something. You know, go to your room or something like that. Any, Any situation can plant the seed for that script. Right. That says you are now a somebody who is not okay. Right. So you're not just a separate self. You're a separate self that not I'm not good enough. Yeah. That in itself is to me the the primary place where we start to really construct an ego. Right. Yeah. Is around the sense that I am not good enough. So. Then as we go through our childhood years, there's most likely going to be experiences, external experiences that will reinforce or what seem to be validate that I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable or, and then we start to do that internally. Right. Yeah. You know, you get your report card and you look at it and you, oh man, oh, all my friends I know got A's and B's and I got this C or D or whatever it is and now we start comparing our separate self to other separate selves mm-hmm. and i don't measure up right. so it just reinforces that idea that i am not good enough which you were talking about earlier is there is no good enough or yeah, bad enough there you just are so but that that goes into some extreme uh extreme identity issues for people who are often losing a lot of life energy every day just trying not to be the one who isn't good enough right yeah well then you know notice that our approach or uh, to i'm not good enough is not oh no you are good enough that's not what we're saying either we're saying what would be enough right what would be enough for these people what would be enough for this mother and then you might find to discover nothing none of this would nothing would be good enough okay um so what does it matter anymore there's nothing you can do um or you can look at it another way imagine becoming a person who's a mother whose own child could never be good enough and they imbue that child with that feeling intentionally um how miserable would you have to be to do that to your own child? And whatever your answer is, that's probably how miserable that mother would be, right? And then you start to feel compassion. And you start to go, well, it's not that there is a good enough or bad, you know, or anything like that. It's just this is a miserable person that's expressing their sadness through the treatment of their child. And uh, they have to be pretty miserable to do that, right? So um, there's many ways where all of a sudden you start to get to a silence here, right? What would be good enough? Nothing, right? There's the silence. And then, uh, or um, imagine being that person, 
and doing that to a child. How would you feel? And oh, silence, you know. It's just like, oh, I'd be miserable. I wouldn't want to be that person. All right, well, so why are you trying to measure up to a person you don't want to be? Uh, and the challenge is, this is all occurring unconsciously. You, you're not going to find children coming home and saying, oh, man, my script was activated today. Right, yeah. My friend Billy didn't want to play with me. He said I wasn't his friend anymore. Yeah. It's more like, um, as parents or caregivers of children, we have to pay very close attention, you know, right. as far as what's going on. So you can kind of see these nuances of mood changes or, oh, you seem, you seem really sad today. You seem upset. You seem angry. And, and try to distill it down and get to it, which is often, yeah, I feel like I don't measure up in some manner or another, but... When it occurs unconsciously, it just keeps repeating right, and solidifying the sense of a self that is not okay, and that just keeps us going into more sophisticated maladaptive coping strategies to not feel the I'm not okay, which is, to me, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, is fear. Fear comes up when the script gets activated. So when the fear comes up, and I don't want to feel it, I'm going to go check out in some manner. And we all have our very specific manners of what we're calling maladaptive coping strategies. And when that script gets activated, we're going into a fight-or-flight internal response physically, mm -hmm. biologically. Cortisol is being released. Adrenaline other hormones are flooding our system, but the problem is we are not actually fighting anything or fleeing because there is no actual threat. And so we're not even, we're not even dispersing this flood of hormones from our body. It's just, it's just staying in there. And then over time, you could say we create a pain body by repressing our feelings of fear, chucking out, doing our maladaptive coping strategies, and all the stuff gets stored in the body. Yeah, and it starts to come out through your behavior. So, like, this is why people develop tics of different kinds, um, like obsessive-compulsive tics where you have to keep everything level in the room or something, and you don't know why. Or I just have to do this. I, it just makes me feel okay. Or something along those lines. Um, or you start forming uh, rational behaviors. If I flip the light switch three times, you know, yeah, I will live, continue to live. Or if I can control my eating, I can control my life. Um, it's none about of, control. Right. It's none of it's true. Um, but we start to do this because we've repressed all of that unconscious behavior. And so... Um, a lot of the work, which we've talked about many times on these episodes, is paying attention to what's actually happening. You are not your story. So why is the story there? And do you have to follow it? So the, the, the beginning of the death of the ego is through awareness that it's actually there, that it's actually being reinforced, that 
we're identified with it in a manner that is not life affirming. Mm-hmm. It's often very limiting. And so being aware of it then gives us the power in the moment to make a conscious choice and decision rather than to just slip into our habitual conditioned ways after the script gets activated. It's, it's, it, to me, it's like, oh, I see what's happening right now. I'm aware the script has been activated. Not my script, because that's mm-hmm. over-identification with it. Mm-hmm. The script has been activated, and I'm at the effect of it. And right now, I'm about to do this thing that I usually do, or say this, or respond in this particular situation in this manner, but I'm going to choose not to do that now. So the beginning process of the death of the ego would be recognizing it and then unlearning our way out of all the conditioned ways that the ego wants to act and speak in a manner that is going to gain control or the perception of control. Right, yeah. So you're going to find, um, as that starts to happen, that you're going to find identities within your script um, that uh, you now have to disidentify with, and you're going to resist it, you know. So um, you maybe it's possible that you want to be in control of your life, right? You want to be the person who is in control of their life. That's an ego. That's an identity, right? So now you have to become the person is who's neither in control or not in control uh, of your life and let go of that identity altogether. And that's painful for some, letting go of those identities. Um, painful in the sense that if I'm not this, then who am I? Right. Or if if... If I can't keep building myself up around this identity, then what? Yeah, it it becomes it becomes painful, um, and you know what needs to happen. the The ego needs to die. You need to disidentify with it. But that again, another weird way um, that this might come out, uh, this kind of unconscious repression, is that. It knows it needs to die, but then it enacts it on the body itself. And this is where, you know, uh, suicidal activity starts to come in. Something has to die. It just has nothing to do with the body. And, um, and but, you know, the person's like, oh, I, this, I can't stand myself. I, can't, I hate myself. You know, okay, so you hate the identity. Therefore, I must end my body. And then it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not who you are. You're not your body. You, you, you see this quite often when a person is dying, right? So if you've ever sit, sat at a bed of a loved one while they're dying, there's moments where um, they're lucid and then they're not themselves, right? And you, you can recognize the behavioral change, right? Their body's acting in the way I'm used to, so they're lucid, the body is acting in a way I'm not used to, so I'm losing them, right? And so you notice that um, what they are is separate, you know, from their body, that this body's more like a stimulus or a catalyst to a thought of who they are. The thought is who they are, right? 
So that even when a person dies, you can actually bring them back through a thought. Right. Yeah, and it's it's important to recognize that for some people, the the train of thought into that identity of being somebody who isn't good enough or, or, or worse, I don't even deserve to be here, um, I'm unlovable, can go so strong that to actually stop that train of thinking and come into a lucid moment of recognition is very difficult. So if any of our listeners are in that space, uh, we do recommend and suggest that, you know, you reach out to somebody if you're in that space of having thoughts of self-harm or harm to others. There is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 800-273-8255. It's, it, we have to reach out, and if it's just even temporary, well, somebody will just help ground us a bit and, and get us a little more centered to come out of, you know, it's, it's like a vortex. I mean, it, you just get sucked into it at some point because it's the thing that just has kept moving bigger and bigger. It's a snowball going down a hill, yeah, gaining more mass, gaining more of a sense of identity. But the critical piece is we are not our thoughts. So recognize that the thought that I need to end my body is just one more thought related to I have to do this because this is defective in some manner. And, um, but then draw one's attention to, well, what actually does need to die here? Well, it is the identification as being a separate self, especially a self that is defective or not good enough. And that's where the unlearning comes in. That's where the moment where true conscious awakening can help us gain a measure of, of resiliency back. And what that does then, and we're always disempowered when we, when we slip into our patterns, when we just go into autopilot mode. That's disempowerment. That's the limitation. Um, but if we pause long enough and really start to allow ourselves to have more and more moments of being present, aware, conscious, connected, having a direct experience of what is in the moment, we can start to see what's going on and choose consciously not to do that anymore. So I really see this ego death as being a conscious movement to unlearn the patterns of this identity known as the ego. As we unlearn our way out of those conditioned habits and, and patterns of, of behavior, we stop losing all that life energy because there's so much energy that's put into constructing this ego, maintaining it, boosting it up, and trying to, you know, give it a place in the world that just not, simply not doing, doing nothing, right, is going to gain us a measure of energy back that we have been depleting most days. So I would say if you use an analogy, if you start at ground zero, point zero, 
a lot of times we might be functioning or living living out of a a net loss mm. of energy in a day. Some days it's going to go up net gain, but more days than not, we're, we're depleting our energy and it might be at a net loss. So by unlearning our way out of those patterns, we at least bring ourselves eventually back to ground zero. Mm-hmm. I'm not really losing energy, but I have yet to really understand how to live out of generative energy. And that's for another conversation and another podcast. How do we get to generative energy? But we can't get to generative energy until we first do the unlearning our way out of these internal blocks and obstacles. Right. So you want to start with a um, choiceless awareness. All right. Don't put pressure on yourself to change because you're just now suddenly starting to paying attention. Just pay attention for a while. And you will notice that simply in paying attention, the pattern starts to dissipate. Uh, this is why, the f- you know, if we go back in time to the most ancient symbols for God, um, one of the main ones was just an eye an eye that never blinks, that's always paying attention. And uh, so you start to just the practice of paying attention. If you start to see yourself going into anxiety, just watch yourself do it. Just like, what do you do? Does your hand shake? Uh, Does your heart beat faster? Is your breathing the same? Or is it different from your normal breathing? Just these these kind of tiny observations, all of a sudden you'll notice that if you start going, is my breathing the same? Your breathing will change, and then you'll go, wait, well, how was I breathing? Don't worry about the past moment Just don't and analyze the past moment. Stay in the, in the here now, just going, oh, now my breathing's changed, because I was looking at it or I was paying attention to it. Um, my hand was shaking, then I started looking at it, and then all of a sudden it stopped shaking. You know? You're stepping out at this point. You, you know, They're stepping out of the program. You're stepping out of the narrative. You s- interrupted the narrative. So paying attention, just sitting in awareness and truly paying attention. And I would say another step in it is taking each thought seriously. Genuinely ask the questions that you would ask if you were doing an investigation on each thought. So if the thought's like, I'm a horrible person, okay, then ask the thought, by what conditions am I a horrible person or... Who else is a horrible person? Well, Hitler's a horrible person, so am I Hitler? You know, no, of course not. All right, well then, how are you saying this about yourself? Notice that I'm not saying, don't think you're not a, you know, don't think you're a horrible person. I'm not saying that. I'm actually saying, take it seriously, investigate it, um, ask the question, and watch what happens. The, The thought doesn't stick around. So first you observe, be the observer, as though you're just witnessing or watching this this um, this narrative playing out, and then inquire maybe, oh, so what is this? What's actually happening here? Oh, and what makes me the horrible person? You know, and really, not so much analyzing, but just inquiring. Right. Yeah. This is the part. You know, the there's a verse in the Bible: the sin can't stand the light of God. This is the light of God. All of a sudden, you're really paying attention, and you're taking it seriously, and you're inquiring with reason, 
all of a sudden you'll notice it's the thought's not going to argue with you. It's going to start to flee. Um, it's going to start dissipating, and you're going to have silence. And then you can, you know, go back into once you've, you know, flipped the switch into silence, and you're like, well, I can, now it's time to go back in life. You flip the switch on, and you go, okay, what do I want to happen here? Because I can be free of any of this at any time. You know, you can just notice how your ties to your problems are wrapped in identities. I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm an employee, I'm unemployed. These are all identities. Uh, I'm black, I'm white. Um, the One of the great attitudes I've heard recently about when it comes to love and the LGBTQ community was the person was like, well, what are you? Are you gay? Are you bisexual? And the person responded, I just love who I love. And it was refused a category. And it was like, okay, so these categories, these names, they're actually for you know political power. It's for you to get recognition and no longer be mistreated. But that's not who you are. You love who you love and you let go of trying to belong to a group. We seek the safety of group because we're scared. If I, if I uh, say, oh, I'm a Christian, then if you attack me, you attack Christianity, that's a safety net. That's you running behind the umbrella of a group. Um, Which is part of an identity. Right. We have our individual identities, and then we seek out collective identities. So you could say we go from egocentric to ethnocentric. Um, I want to stand out. I want to be somebody. Right. And so I'm going to align myself with others who have a similar identification. Yeah. And when we come together, we reinforce that sense that we are somebody, we have power, Right. We, you know, it's power. I, I think it's power. What we lose is our inherent power, not power over anybody, but just the power to be in the world and to be an expression of life force. And we diminish that power as we keep narrowing it down into a fixed identity with the whole narrative and and that and and that limitating you know, way of being. Right, that you were born, right? And this is actually where, you know, uh, I start to see Christianity and the story of Jesus, mostly just Jesus, is um, the metaphor for what's happening, right? You die on the cross. You pick up your cross daily. You die to the self, and then you are reborn. You're born again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when Jesus said, you, you have to die before you can truly live, you know, um, you have to become as children. You know, what does that mean? You have to come out of all this intensive thinking and over-identifying and, and be as the children are. They're spontaneous. They live in the moment. They just let things come through. They're playing. They're playing. They're interacting. They're social. They're communicative in their own ways. And um, it's a beautiful thing to see. So some of these statements um, are not so much, I think, 
to be thought about, but to be lived, embodied. Right. You have to die before you can really live. What does that mean? Well, you can you can debate it conceptually mm-hmm. for a long time, but embody it. Yeah. So the ego, and here's another thing too. D- does it really die, or is this a metamorphosis? You could say, does the caterpillar actually die before it becomes a butterfly? Um, yes, in some in some levels, the caterpillar no longer exists. Right. But it has metamorphosized into something different, greater, more expansive, whatever one more might freedom call it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and then it emerges from this cocoon that it has spun around itself. Mm-hmm. In new life. Yeah. So lots of metaphors, not just in the in the Christian perspective or story, but you, you can see it in all the world religions and uh, wisdom traditions that there is a sense of one has to come out of this limited existence in order to truly be free. Right. And liberated. Right. And I think another point is it's inevitable to have a, an ego develop. But it's not inevitable for that ego to stay in complete control of one's life for its entirety. In fact, um, the primary movement of awakening is to see that that is a gross limitation of what's possible. Yeah. But until we know that, we do, over time, experience the, the suffering that comes along with the limitations of the ego. We do experience the struggle. And then we start seeking out ways in which we are going to get a reprieve. Right. And this is another point of, um, of awareness, is that if I'm going toward various things, whether it's alcohol or relationship, or something that's going to make me feel good, raise my dopamine and serotonin levels so I feel (laughs) okay. Um, Is that really producing what I'm looking for? Or am I just spinning myself into another web? And there's there's a term called spiritual bypassing. It's gotten plenty of airtime out in the public already, but I want to bring it up here because... What can happen is we make a decision that I need to change or something needs to change in my life because I don't want to live like this anymore. And we start going toward other things or teachers or gurus or books or authors or something with a sense that that's going to be my way out is them or or that particular, you know... um, methodology or something still to find ourselves lost in one more thing or identified with one more thing Mm -hmm. and so what the suggestion we're making is most of us probably would do well to have a a seasoned guide who knows the landscape right to help us understand what awakening really is and what it's not otherwise the ego in its sophistication will take this new path and turn it into yet one more endless 
diversion right away from distraction distraction uh and you mentioned um the quote about sin right yeah so my understanding of the origin of the word sin is not some immoral action or behavior it's more about missing the mark right and missing the mark is you know drifting away from one's true nature or or the the greater whole of life that web that we're all part of right so in my sinning i'm losing connection right. to that essence my own essence the essence of my being the connection to others the greater whole so i am trying to come back and some references do describe this as a a return home a coming yeah. home again and so we're not who we think we are right we have to come out of that and if we want to truly awaken we have to be able to see what the blocks and obstacles are to really allowing ourselves to come back into a way of living that is evolutionary expansive awakening yeah in nature you are the source of your problem and therefore you are the solution to the problem yes so um a few things to think about yeah and consider a few things to not think about (laughs) see if there's anything here for you that you can um you can work with in your daily living if there are some things that you can do different. Uh, and we talked about it in some detail earlier of pause, notice. Just, just take time to look and see what's actually going on. Choose not to do the usual thing. Be the observer. And then perhaps remind yourself, uh, uh, I choose not to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's just not me. I'm going to come back to the present moment. I'm going to have a direct experience of the present moment. That's where I'm going to live. I'm not going to time travel. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to just drop in, breathe, and, you know, look for the various ways that I'm feeling moved to act or speak. Yeah, just go left instead of right this time. See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Try something different. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Good to have you all with us again for another conversation here. And this is World Awakening. We are the ones we've been waiting for and look forward to having you along with us again for a future conversation. And check our website out as usual, invenerygr.com. It's I-N-V-E-N-I-R-E. GR.com. Until next time, be well. Send us questions that come up for our Q&A segments at invenaregr.com. That's I-N-B-E-N-I-R-E-G-R.com. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on what we're up to. Your host for this episode has been Mark Wallstrom. We invite you to like and review this podcast on iTunes. And until next week, thanks for listening.